Good evening, folks, and welcome to the Daily Evolver Live. I'm Jeff Salzman. It's Tuesday evening, January 6th, 2015. And I'm coming to you, as always, from my home in Boulder, Colorado. I'm here tonight with Brett Walker, who is managing and producing the call in the kitchen. Hey, Brett. Hi. This is the first show of our winter season, in the Northern Hemisphere at least. And, you know, I was thinking about it today. In the Southern Hemisphere, it's summer. And, you know, it's been such a cold holiday. It's been beautiful in a sort of Courier and Ives way. We had a white Christmas and you know, a real deep freeze between Christmas and New Year's, lots of snow. And when it occurred to me today that if summertime in the Southern Hemisphere, it's still, I have that sense of wonder. And and I actually remember back, I was probably, I guess, five or six years old when, you know, science wrenched me out of that egocentric or even ethnocentric view that the world is as it seems. It's, you know, flat and me and all my people could see that and you know, and into this view that, no, actually, we're living on a ball. We're standing on top of a ball. And people on the bottom of the ball think that they're standing on top of the ball. And actually, we're both right. Things are different than they appear. And it just occurred to me that this could be the slogan for development at every stage. And that's one of the things we're going to talk about as we look at the topic for tonight, which is basically doing what one does in the dead of winter or summer, at the solstice, that is. And that is you take stock and, you know, just look around and pause for a moment and and see what's going on from a, you know, bigger 30,000 foot view. So uh, we're going to do that tonight. Uh, But before we do, I want to go through just a couple logistics, starting with a word from our sponsor, and I particularly want to give a shout out, as always, to Integral Life, IntegralLife.com, who hosts this podcast and where I originated this podcast four years ago with David Reardon and Corey DeVos. Uh, integral Life is the main web portal for cutting edge integral thinking. They feature Ken Wilber's latest work and do all sorts of innovative conferences and investigations including one coming up at the end of March on the integral view of Jesus, which I'm really looking forward to. So check that out. Uh, This podcast, Daily Evolver Live, is also available on iTunes and Stitcher. And of course, it appears along with additional postings and commentary on my blog, dailyevolver.com. And, um, you know, I have to say that I'm surprised and astonished, really, at how much this blog has grown in terms of of listeners. Uh, We had over 20,000 downloads last season, in the fall season. And, you know, I'm just amazed. You know, I've been doing this, as I said, for years with the idea that I was being faithful (laughs) more than successful. Uh, But it's uh, really gratifying. And, and you know, I encourage you to continue to share with your friends and so forth and keep listening and I'll do the best I can to bring, you know, this integral view, which is really so helpful and life-giving and affirming to current events, uh, you know, politics and culture and spirituality and so forth. The the other thing I want to say is that it's always great to have those of you who are on the call live. I have a sort of a loyal cadre of, of people. I see lots of people sign on week after week and a lot of friends and a lot of new people too. So thank you so much, everybody, for being on here live. Uh, it's an opportunity to comment. Uh, we have questions at the end if people have any. Uh, you can press one if you want to raise your hand, so to speak. And I'll remind you of that. Also, another way to uh, get in touch is through a device we have on the dailyevolver.com blog called SpeakPipe. And it's an orange button on the opening page where you can press the button and speak to me. And it's a recording. And it's a great way to ask a question. I can respond. I can use it on the the call and the show. So, And I have one tonight that we'll be playing later on. It's also a chance to get a sense of how people are feeling and thinking. Uh, So, I occasionally do a poll, and I'd like to start 
tonight with a poll that I think is appropriate for our time as we transition from one year into the next. And I'd like to ask you two questions. One is, how optimistic slash pessimistic are you about the world in 2015? And the same, how optimistic or pessimistic are you about your own situation in the next year? So first, get ready to press a key. You can press a key between one and five. If you are optimistic, press one. If you are pessimistic, press five and any gradient in between. So very optimistic one, sort of optimistic two, in the middle three, you know, slightly pessimistic four and pessimistic five. And this is about the world situation in 2015. One optimistic, five pessimistic. So go ahead and press the buttons. And Brett, uh, let me know when it's good to do the next question. Okay. And while you're doing that, let me also just mention another quick logistical thing. And that is that for those of you who are um, interested in the theory and maybe new to the theory, there are a couple charts that you can look at during the call that help you follow uh, some of the main principles that I talk about, particularly altitudes and quadrants. And you can uh, link to those um, on the reminder email that you got uh, reminding you of this call. There's a link that you can click to see those charts. So how are we doing, Brett? We ready for the next question? Ready for the next question. Cool. All right. So again, optimistic one, pessimistic five. Where are you on that continuum regarding your own situation in 2015? All right. So let's just then take a look. And Brett, you can give us those results when you get them compiled. Let's just take a look at you know, where we are as we sort of close out the one year and, and open the next and we say goodbye to 2014 and maybe good riddance uh, because, you know, most people just have that attitude. I just notice as we sort of, as I talk to people and, you know, to the degree that we're tuned in to the global brain and the global brain is the only way really to tune into the world. I mean, I can look out my window and see what's happening and I can talk to my friends and so forth. But if I want to know what's happening in the world, I tune into the media and the internet and all of the communication systems that we have together. And the, the basic message that is, you know, that runs through that system is a, <laughs> you know, you'd think that 2014 was an unremitting horror show. I think that one of the blandest headlines that, that I saw is one of these end-of-the-year stories that you see was in the Wall Street Journal, and it was a headline that said, 2014, year in review, the events that shaped a turbulent year. And then, of course, they went on and talked about ISIS, which was the huge story last summer, where this you know band of Islamic militants, a red band, as we would say in integral theory, uh, seem to come out of nowhere in Iraq and Syria, have taken over a part of those two countries that is the size of Ireland. Uh, in Syria, of course, another 70,000 people died this year in the war there. It's clearly the single worst spot on earth. Uh, soldiers, civilians, um, children. Uh, I, I, I have to say more and more when I think of these war zones, I, I think also of the animals. I saw this a heartbreaking picture of these dogs that were in this rubble war zone with snipers all around, and they were clearly two pets. And it, you know, just broke my heart. So, you know, the pain of this is, you know, something that we really want to feel into. You know, as I, I often point out on, on this call, that to the degree that we do that, um, it really helps us to know what to do to be helpful. Uh, so that we don't, you know, turn away or explain it our way or try to fix it in a way that is really more than of a nuisance than it is a help. Uh, we also had, of course, in 2014, Ebola was the huge story. We've had 8,000 people dead, almost uh, 20,000 further infected, more to come. Uh, the communities devastated, the economies, particularly these three countries in Africa, just really, really blown back. And, you know, it's interesting from an a evolutionary perspective. I mean, we can watch this as integralists with a sort of morbid fascination 
uh, sort of the same way that a geologist might look at an earthquake or something, where you see the, the devastation, but you also see what's going on in a way that you didn't before. We see that, you know, as I said, this ISIS is this explosion of red that, uh, you know, just sort of came out of nowhere. And at least to, you know, those of us who were tuned into the global brain, I think there were some people who knew it was coming or could see it, at least as it ramped up. One of the things I was reading another article in the Wall Street Journal about Ebola, and they were talking about one of the most difficult things in treating this disease in Africa is dealing with these local healers who are treating these diseases with things like tree bark and, and herbs. And they're, of course, uh, suspicious of these aid workers that come in with their hazmat suits from the West or from the modern world. And there's uh, stories and of, of, of sorcery and organ harvesting and, and people, uh, you know, shy away from the AIDS workers. And one of the most potent scenes of mass infection was the funeral of one of these uh, local doctors, uh, uh, community doctors, who, uh, you know, had sounded the alarm about the AIDS workers being organ harvesters that during her funeral, hundreds of people were infected. Another incident where hundreds of people were infected were in these Pentecostal rallies where these fundamentalist preachers were doing laying-ons of hands um, and speaking in tongues and that kind of, you know, Christian faith healing that didn't really help. Or maybe it did, but it didn't help as much as the medicines are. And so we can sort of see these stages of development that are at work in these stories that really add a texture and, and help us understand and see what's going on. Of course, we had the conflict between the Russians and the Ukrainians. We had certain retrenchment of democracy in Myanmar, Turkey, Thailand. Um, in the United States, we had the reopening of racial wounds in Ferguson and New York and we have these cop killers here in New York now, and, uh, you know, it's a whole big thing. And turbulent times. And it kind of makes you long for the good old days when we had non-turbulent times, doesn't it? Those were the days, <laughs> except they weren't, of course, you know, in our memories. And, it, you know, you realize that the best thing that the past has going for it is that we know how things worked out. And we lived. What a relief. We survived the past, and we're here to tell about it, so everything's okay. But the present and future is another story. You know, none of us, this is the existential human dilemma, but none of us knows for sure whether we're going to live through the night. <laughs> and I can feel my anxiety raise as I even say that. You know, so there's no turbulent free option. Of course. And, you know, so I, I promised that, that tonight we would do an integral view of 2015. And here it is. This is the integral view of 2015. It's going to be turbulent. Stuff is going to happen. But that's life on Earth. And so the question becomes, as if there's no turbulent free option, the question is then, how turbulent? In what ways turbulent? Is there anything about turbulence that we can see is actually good. And with that kind of a standard, that kind of a lens brought into the situation, it turns out that for humanity, 2014 uh, is certainly a candidate, if not a shoe-in, for being the best year that humanity has ever seen and experienced and lived through. And that's true across the board, uh, you know, with these exceptions of... Um, well, of course, there's millions of people for whom that's not true. Billions, probably, of people for whom that's not true for all sorts of reasons. But humanity as a whole, we are living longer, healthier lives. Uh, the global life expectancy now stands at a new high of 71.5 years. It's up six years since 1990. In India, it's up seven years for men and 10 for women. And the Biggest gains, of course, is where things were the worst, such as in Rwanda and Ethiopia in, since 1990, 
life expectancy has risen 15 years. And this is also true in developed countries. Since 1990, the life expectancy in Western Europe is up five years. And this is thanks mainly to fewer deaths from cancer and heart disease. So the tens of thousands of people who are stricken with Ebola, died with Ebola, infected with Ebola, uh, are, is overwhelmed by the hundreds of thousands of people uh, who have been saved through progress in, say, malaria and diarrhea, a simple disease like diarrhea. Uh, we're this close to a vaccine for AIDS and even a cure for AIDS. Uh, and, and you contrast this with, you contrast Ebola with, uh, we're coming up on the 100th anniversary of the Spanish flu, which killed somewhere, according to Wikipedia, between 50 and 100 million people uh, back in 1918. Like I said, we're coming up on the 100th anniversary. Uh, 650,000 of them were in the U.S., which would, if you extrapolate to our larger population, would be close to 2 million people died of the Spanish flu in the U.S. alone in 1918. But that's not so long ago. I was just thinking that my great-grandmother was entering early middle age as a widowed mother of four at that point in the game. And that's just remarkable to me. Um, the world is more democratic. I know there's some controversy about that. But according to empirical evidence gathered by Max Rosner, an economist at Oxford University, the world is officially more democratic than ever before, with majority of countries under democratic control, roughly half the world's population. And he has all of these gradients of very democratic and sort of democratic and down to completely autocratic. But it is a relentless, as I said, it, it currently half the population is uh, living in what we would call democratic societies. And I, there's a couple quotes from Max uh, Rosener that I thought were really interesting, and I'll just read a couple of them. He says, it is not possible to understand how the world is changing by following the daily news. Disasters happen in an instant, but progress is a slow process that does not make the headlines. I think I just read that last sentence again. Disasters happen in an instant, relatively. I mean, the ISIS, Ebola, you know, came out of nowhere in 2014. But progress is a slow process that does not make the headlines. He also says, democracy is contagious and brings about more democracy. Why? Because it is successful. Uh, and that's a complicated process that we'll, we'll exp we explore often on the, the, the podcast and will in the future. And then his third quote that I like, he said, thinking about the future, maybe the most promising development of all is that the young generation around the world is becoming much better educated than ever before. And that, of course, is an engine of development, education. We also note there was a big study that showed that we are happier as we get older. Uh, if you're over 50, that is. <laughs> so those of you under 50, uh, you got you know, to go down the, the hill before you come back up. But 50 seems to be the low point. Uh, after, you know, the 30s and 40s, it's, uh, you know, that's when we're making our way. But at 50, things start to relax a little bit. And this, this matters culturally as, as well, as at least the leading edge of consciousness on the planet just becomes more mature. There's a relaxation of the fears and anxieties and tensions that really run us in our early years. There was a column in today's New York Times by David Brooks, and I often mention David Brooks because I think he's... You know, I don't, he's not overtly integral, but he is among the most integral of the writers or columnists who are working in the mainstream these days. And he wrote a column on meaning, finding meaning. And uh, he started it out, I'll read the first three paragraphs, they're fairly short. And I thought they really, you know, gave me a warm, found a warm spot in my heart and soul. He says, not long ago, a friend sent me a speech that the great civic leader, John Gardner, gave to the Stanford Alumni Association 61 years after he graduated from that college. So I'm assuming this man was in his 80s when he wrote this. He said, the speech is chock full of practical wisdom. I especially liked this passage. And he quotes this John Gardner is saying, 
The things you learn in maturity aren't simple things such as acquiring information and skills. You learn not to engage in self-destructive behavior. You learn not to burn up energy and anxiety. You discover how to manage your tensions. You learn that self-pity and resentment are among the most toxic of drugs. You find that the world loves talent, but pays off on character. And in this last piece, he says, and I love this, he said, you come to understand that most people are neither for you nor against you. They're thinking about themselves. You learn that no matter how hard you try to please, some people in this world are not going to love you. A lesson that is at first troubling and then really quite relaxing. <laughs> and I find at 60 that that's true. So again, across the board in all four quadrants, things just uh, get slowly and relentlessly better and better. Now, of course, the one ex uh, exception to that is climate. Uh, and climate change, global warming, the, the, the greenhouse gases. And, you know, there's some good news there too. Uh, it was uh, a good year for Obama in, in terms of regulating the uh, end of dirty coal and in, in these coal power plants, a significant agreement with China. And also, we just noticed that, again, the trend in terms of efficiency is definitely in the positive direction in, in terms of in the developed world, the use of electricity and, and power, power in general is not growing. In some cases, it's shrinking. And this is even considering that we're using so much more power uh, and getting more power out of less energy through efficiencies and, and, um, and that sort of thing. So U.S. is at 2001 levels in terms of energy usage. And Great Britain, I notice, is at um, the level of 1990, even though their economy is 60% larger. And that's a trend that we at least need to factor in as we get hysterical about global warming. And of course, what the global warming alarmists, uh, as you know, the sort of the flip side of the global warming deniers, is the two extremes, what, but what the alarmists don't often figure in is the uh, creativity and innovation of human beings. And we see this in terms of you know, a radical uh, drop in cost of solar over the last year and uh, some uh, significant uh, development at MIT on even fusion power, which is widely considered to be the power of the future in an ideal world, at least. This is where they create little suns and the emissions are, are, are pure water. So, you know, these facts are getting harder and harder to ignore. And I actually feel like I noticed this year, at the end of the year, that there was a sort of a shift in consciousness. There was a realization among more and more people. We saw it on, you know, John Stewart in um, a lot of blogs, in particularly science magazines, but also mainstream magazines. The sense that, you know, it seemed like a horrible year because of our 24-7 news coverage of everything, of everything that's going wrong, but that this was the year that the media jumped the shark in a way, that they went overboard in an obvious way. And there's a new meme, and you can see it if you search on Google, uh, lots and lots of stories at the end of the year about how the world is actually getting better. And I love to see that because it's, there's a shift. I mean, again, I, in this moment, can feel it in my body of uh, a sense of encouragement and not just discouragement and, and depression and a sense of possibility when we realize that there is progress being made on these important issues. And one of my favorite of these articles was on Vox, V-O-X, which is, I think it's fairly new. It, it, I, I really started paying attention to Vox in the last year. It's Ezra Klein's website, Vox.com. And it's really worth noting. I think it's one of the more integral news sites um, in the, on the internet. And they had an article about 26 charts. And they do all these charts and graphs all the time. 26 charts that show how the world is getting better. 
And, you know, one is on how extreme poverty's fallen, hunger's falling, child labor's in decline, people in developed countries have more leisure time, teen births are down, war is in the decline. I've made this point many, many times that we're seeing the end of war maybe in some of our lifetimes, you know, and humanity does make that kind of moral progress. Uh, we used to be cannibals for most of human history. Uh, we had slavery for most of human history. They're, you know, if they're not completely gone, they're at least criminalized. And war can be something that human beings also put behind them. Violent crime is radically down, particularly in the developed world. More people are going to school, literacy's up. You know, again, 26 of these charts. And even CNN, uh, CNN, the home of, you know, I want to say 24-7, but God, this went on for three weeks of searching for the Malaysian aircraft. My God, those people can hammer a story. And, you know, I got to say, I'm annoyed by CNN uh, more than I am by Fox, in a sense, because Fox, I expect it. And of course, Fox News would never, and has never, that I know of, uh, have this, a story on how the world's getting better. It's just, you know, not in the DNA. Uh, in fact, one of the things they ran on Fox News, Fox News, of course, for those of you overseas, um, uh, is the conservative news uh, station in America. And they ran this clip of Obama talking about how the world's getting better over and over uh, to prove just what a naive and, you know, uh, out of touch a president we had, uh, even though everything Obama was saying was actually true in, in that particular case. But, you know, they have their motives, one of which is that it does serve the political agenda of Fox. And Fox has a political agenda. That's, you know, it's fine. So does MSNBC and so do other news media. That's sort of a trend, is that, you know, people realize that, that uh, or these producers realize that people tune in to these shows not to watch the refs, but to watch the combatants and, you know, take a side and get involved. And that's not bad. But it serves Fox's political agenda to make it seem, particularly in an election year, as it was in the United States here, midterm election, to create an at atmosphere of chaos so that the you know, ruling party gets voted down. And of course, it builds ratings. That's another motivation. It's, you know, we have a, a fear and um, negativity bias built into our psyches. And we also know that conservatives have more of a fear response than liberals. We know it uh, empirically in terms of skin, galvanic skin tests. And of course, the third reason they push that agenda is because they believe it. The uh, people who run Fox News and work at Fox News are traditionalists. And they don't, um, or, you know, early modernists, they don't see that the world is getting better. It's just really just not how they, uh, the antenna that they pick up the information in the world. So anyway, let's look at how this shows up as we bring a, a more integral view to the party here. And uh, let's start with looking at Ebola. What actually happened, as opposed to, you know, the fear, if you can remember back whenever it was, I guess, September, October, when Ebola was the big story, there were people who were convinced that this was a plague that was going to take over. Uh, everywhere. Uh, Ross Douthat on New York Times wrote a column about it. He actually, it was fun to see his latest column called Confessions of a Columnist. He talked about how he was wrong about Ebola and that it actually was containable and that the modern systems did work and that, you know, the people in charge deserve credit for that. And this is why I like Ross, uh, because he is a fair-minded conservative. But what he's recognizing and what he's talking about is something that is basically the collective equivalent of a human being's immune system. We have a collective immune system uh, through the, particularly the modern medical networks that are being laid around the world. When a case of Ebola comes up, uh, it rings the alarms. And we can see that, of course, the Ebola crisis did expose weaknesses in the system. 
We saw that hospitals didn't have protocols. We saw that the uh, powers that be in these countries where the epidemic was starting didn't raise the alarm, didn't mobilize fast enough. Uh, We realized that, you know, we didn't take it seriously soon enough. This is what all the leaders and experts point out. And I want to pause there and say that that's true. We didn't take it seriously soon enough. And this can be said of any crisis at any time in history. This is the nature of crisis, that we see things suddenly that we didn't see before. We didn't see it coming. We didn't prepare. And this is the ode of humanity. And it's, again, an intelligent collective expression of our survival instinct. Just as an amoeba shrinks away from danger reflexively, and a rabbit shrinks away from danger instinctively, we human beings shrink away from danger conceptually. That is, we have the ability, we have these huge intellectual antenna, or where we get information from all kinds of places. We're plugged into this global brain. We have huge computing power, and I'm not just talking the global brain, I'm not talking just the exteriors, but also in our own brains. And we have this meaning-making capacity that is just jaw-dropping compared to any being that came before us. And we have the ability to see the results of our actions played out into the future. We can notice causation from many stages back from the past, and so... That's what we human beings do. And as my friend Patricia Albert always says, we're very busy with it. (laughs) That's what we, as I said, this human beings do. And and, and again, there's nothing wrong with, not only is there nothing wrong with it, it's like, hallelujah. It's what brought us out of the swamps. It's what, in an individual basis, makes us a functional adult. And we all know people who don't do that who don't pay attention to reality. And, uh, you know, these are the people we would consider not to be responsible. But this vigilance and danger-seeking is also a drag if we're limited by it, if that's all we can see. And so, you know, at some point, we want to be able to see beyond that. And this this is the engine of evolution. We begin to get hip to this inner critic collective inner critic, the cultural inner critic, uh, or in this inner, you know, century that's raising the alarm in the same way that many of us have gotten hip to our inner critic through therapy in our own individual psyches. And so we're getting hip to this in a more collective way in our culture. And that is, you know, really important because, as I said, It's an engine of evolution, and one of the ways that it's often put in the integral world is that the subject of one level of development, that is, the I of one level of development, the you, if you will, becomes the object of the subject of the next level. So the you that begins to see your sort of hypervigilant self this, this sort of, you know, neurosis and this, um, you know, vi- as I said, this vigilance uh, gets bigger and bigger. And, you know, every stage of the game, every step of the way, the, the you that is becoming bigger that can see the you that existed before. You know, this is, it's actually a spiritual position because if you can see something, if I can see my hypervigilant self instead of just be it, then who's doing the seeing? And who's doing the seeing is this bigger Jeff that I can inhale and create a bigger space for. And this is, you know, at some point we begin to do this as a practice. And I would argue that this is happening more and more, not only individually, but culturally. And so I want to take a look at the, the next topic, and that is we look at this a little more deeply from an integral perspective, this phenomena of ISIS and radical fundamentalism. And I got a great question from John in L.A. 
that uh, I'd like to play a segment of. I think he really gets to the crux of the issue from an integral point of view. Brett, can you play that? On top of that, I'd be interested to know if you have an idea for a typical psychograph for an ISIS militant, somebody like an Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, somebody who's got a Ph.D.-level education, apparently, uh, but yet is, uh, you know, obviously doing what he's doing. I'd be interested to know uh, if there are specific lines that you would suggest would be read, namely moral interpersonal, and so forth. What about, uh, you know, this spectrograph uh, as compared to a serial killer or a violent gang member? How might they differ? And specifically, what about an al-Qaeda militant versus an ISIS militant? Kind of curious to understand the difference between red and amber as these extremists come into play here the violence of a, of a red altitude versus the violence of an amber altitude. It seems to be violence at amber as well outside of the group, and that would be an interesting topic. And then lastly, um, the nature of red. Are these militants exhibiting pathological red, or is this actually healthy red, uh, you know, chopping people's heads off? Okay, <laughs> so it's a very, very good question. This, this this difference between how do we, you know, interpret this? Is this healthy or unhealthy red? And of course, we would describe something as being healthy if the person or organism is operating, you know, mostly at the leading edge of their capacity. And for the vast majority of human history, the idea of of genocide, the idea of wiping out your enemy, the idea of, you know, killing their children is, um, you know, that's what Healthy Red did. The healthy tribe, the healthy leader in indigenous Red cultures is the one who provided the most calories, safety, warmth, security, for his tribe. And you would feel towards any competing tribe, not necessarily any cooperative tribe, but you would feel towards any competing tribe the same way that people in modern consciousness feel about killing an Ebola virus. You just, you know, kill them as fast as you can and good riddance and uh, on with the show. And one of the things uh, that we see is that, well, here's an example. There was a, a story that happened when I was on hiatus in um, December. And that was that the Pakistani army is, decided to do an offensive against some of the Taliban in their hinter regions. And they conducted some raids in which people were killed, some civilians were killed. And the Taliban was so incensed by this that they, in return targeted the children of the Pakistani military. And they did a raid into a school for the military children where they entered, they corralled these students and teachers, and they systematically shot and stabbed 150 of them. A hundred of them were the children themselves. Now, that's a difference between amber and red. Amber is the Pakistani military. The Pakistani military would never, just from a moral stage of development, specifically target the children of the Taliban. But in a tribal culture, of course you would target the children. That's the next generation. Uh, and that's, of course, not uh, exclusive or in, new in any way to the Taliban. In fact, you can find this in the Old Testament. There's, uh, this infamous verse out of Psalms that says, bash the heads of the children of my enemies against the rocks, O Lord. I mean, that's just what you do. And again, the amber or even orange military, we, we, we do this with drones. I mean, there are children killed. There are, you know, there are mistakes where we hit a wedding. I mean, this, this is, but these are, this is collateral damage. And as horrible as it is, 
we, you, can, you know, we want to make the distinction that there's collateral damage that hurts children versus intentional damage to hurt children. So, you know, welcome to tribal mentality. And so what's a little troublesome here is that this tribal mentality is happening in a context of a world whose center of gravity has moved beyond that. So we have people like al-Baghdadi, who, as you say, is well-educated. Uh, he's well-educated not outside of his you know, madrasas, so that's problematic. But we have people like Bashar Assad, the leader of uh, Syria, who was educated in London as an ophthalmologist and who worked there as a doctor before he came back to be the butcher of Syria. Or Kim Jong-un in North Korea, who was educated in Switzerland. And both of them, you know, Assad is, you know, has arguably gassed civilians. And Kim Jong-un has increased the prison population in North Korea in these horrible prison camps. It's almost, again, biblical that these people, or Shakespearean, these people find themselves in these situations where maybe they actually do know better. Maybe they did get a download when they were living in the, you know, sort of the, the, the milieu of modernity, you know, the sort of modern morality versus tribal morality. But they become a victim of the system that they're in. And it can be kind of horrible. And so I mentioned before that I, one of the coolest things I did in 2014 was I went to a workshop where Terry O'Fallon, who is a developmental psychologist, uh, revealed some of her research in development. And she made a distinction between people who are at this egocentric, what she called late first person perspective. And these are individuals, this, this is the ISIS, this is the, 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 the you know, really red individuals. These are criminals, serial killers, ISIS, beheaders, and these are people who can be very confused about what is mine and what is yours. If the object is there for the taking, it really very much seems like mine. So it's healthy for a two-year-old to do this. But if we see a four-year-old doing this, it becomes kind of questionable. And we contrast this with rule-oriented people. And this is the early second-person perspective, and this is more the sort of mindset of Al-Qaeda. And as she says, this is the first collective stage where people make the leap from it's all about me to I see you see me. Indeed, you are like me, at least on the outside. And she goes on to write, reciprocity is born, moving from parallel play, from talking at to talking with. And these people learn from trial and error through inductive processes, experiential processes. And, you know, it brings on an ability to do concrete ordering, which brings on the concept of fairness. And so they have an understanding of equality, desire not to be different than others, to look and behave like other people. And there's a sort of a uh, civilization that happens in that process. But very intelligent people, and this is where John points out that integral theory helps us, is that people can be very intelligent in terms of cognition, in terms of what they know and understand, even scientifically and beyond. But at a moral stage of development that is pre-modern and into that sort of violent red milieu, and again, this is an old story in human affairs. I think going right back to Adam and Eve, when they were cast out of the garden and into a wild and dangerous world where they had, you know, that demanded their ruthlessness. So again, what happens where it becomes problematic is where we see these unholy mixtures of pre-modern interiors and modern exteriors. And of course, the classic example of this is Nazi Germany uh, in the, the World War II. They're conducting a genocide and killed six million people. And again, that's nothing new in human history. Genocide is as old as the hills. It was standard procedure in tribal cultures for thousands of years. 
But here we have genocide conducted by modern means. So you're not just committing genocide the good old-fashioned way with clubs and spears, uh, but you're, you know, devising these complex logistics of trains, rounding up and transporting thousands of people, millions of people, uh, you know, hundreds of miles to these essentially factories where scientists have, in laboratories, have concocted these poison gases and means of administering them uh, to hundreds of people at a time. And, you know, they have this assembly line. It's like Disney World or IMAX where you bring the people in, you lock the doors, and you kill them as efficiently as possible. And what's sort of weird and spooky about it is there's nothing personal. We're not trying to make a point. We're not trying to get even. We're not avenging anybody's God. There's no satisfaction of the fight or the kill or the battle. There's no nobility to it. We're just getting the job done. You know, get them in and get them out. On to the next batch. You know, the assembly line is moving. You got to get the clothes and the jewelry and the fillings out of the teeth. And then off to the furnaces where they're reduced to ash and et cetera, et cetera. 24-7, round the clock. And, you know, that is the thing that is most horrifying about what happened to Nazi Germany. But, you know, there's a strange, you know, the mind of evolution is an strange and wonderful thing in the sense that you see now, what is it, 50 years later, that there are 60, that there's a karmic recompense that Germany today is perhaps the most pacified nation on earth. It's certainly, uh, this is according to the BBC World Service, they do a, a poll about how admired countries are. And the most positively viewed nation on earth in the 2004 study was Germany. And it displaced, it displaced Japan, which was the previous winner. I mean, again, you can't make this stuff up. But this is also part of what we lived through in America uh, in, during the, my hiatus one uh, over December, when the Senate report on torture came out. What we saw was, again, torture, which is nothing new. The extraction of, of information through the inflicting of pain is as old as the hills. But it's conducted in this sort of modern, cool way. Uh, where, you know, we have schedules of waterboarding. I cut out some of the, the uh, instructions that were the official instructions for carrying out waterboarding. And it says, the individual is bound securely to an inclined bench, which is approximately four feet by seven feet. The individual's feet are generally elevated. A cloth is placed over the forehead and eyes. Water is then applied to the cloth in a controlled manner. As this is done... It is, the cloth is lowered until it covers both the nose and the mouth on and on, 20 to 40 seconds. You know, then you take it off and do it again. A doctor has to be present, make sure nobody's really hurt. Uh, of course, they were. The execution is a lot different than the instruction. And it turns into this horror show. Again, this other thing where you have to say it's unhealthy, where you have a modern mentality uh, conducting a pre-modern uh, procedure in, you know, this modern way. Most people can, myself included, have an easier time with the Jack Bauer approach. The 20, if you've seen the show 24, where this American agent of the Homeland Security ends up torturing people all the time to get information in this you know, last minute of ticking time bomb scenarios. Um, you know, it's, it's a, a thought experiment that we ought to all do where you just, as, again, a thought experiment, you, you imagine that you have, somebody has uh, your kid, and you have them tied to a chair, and time is of the essence, and what are you going to do to get information out of that person? And, you know, you can say it never works, you can say I can't do it, and maybe you can't, and maybe it doesn't. But it's certainly something that people can understand in that kind of a, ad hoc situation where, you know, as we point out, integral has to include red. Uh, and sometimes integral has to be ruthless. The difference, and this is one of the things you talked about, John, is, you know, karmically, the difference is, are we doing it 
in the heat of the moment in a way that is, as I said, sort of ad hoc? Or are we doing it through some sort of a cool procedure that is, you know, just sort of chills the blood in a way? So uh, let's see here. Wow. <laughs> 55 minutes went fast. So I want to do the um, results of the poll. And we see that, well, you're certainly a lot more optimistic about your lives than you are about the world. Uh, for the world, only 11% are very optimistic, 38% somewhat optimistic. So that's going to be about half of you are optimistic in one way or the other. And then 33% in the middle and only 18% on the pessimistic side for the world. Uh, in terms of your own situation, 41% very optimistic. Uh, 38% somewhat optimistic. So what's that? Nine... Uh, 79% optimistic, 14% in the middle, and only 7% pessimistic. So, yeah, cool. I hope that um, this talk has given you a little bit of reason to be a little more optimistic about the world, at least in these sort of big ways, you know, in terms of the disasters that are going to pop up again oh, uh, in 2015, just as they have in 2014. So, uh, if Anybody has any questions or comments, I'd invite you to press one. And I see we have a couple. So why don't we start with Chase? Hey, Jeff. Um, this is Chase from Los Angeles. How are you? I'm good. How are you, man? Well, I, I remember the living room in October. It, was, it changed my life. It was great. Oh, fantastic. You're talking about the integral living room we did. We're going to do another one next October. So, you know, thanks for saying that. And What's on your mind tonight? Seth Rogen. <laughs> Seth Rogen. <laughs> did you see cool. the interview? I did. Yeah. Did you like it? I did. I, you know, I got to say, I laughed my butt off. We're talking about the movie about the, uh, this is, this is, you know, dumb comedy with Seth Rogen and James Franco about the assassination of Kim Jong-un by these people who go to interview him. This is the, the movie that, had uh, the North Koreans, we think, hack into Sony and, 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 you know, make all their emails and stuff public and um, had Sony pull the movie and then Obama criticized them and they had it online. And yeah, you can get it online, of course. Did you see it? What'd you think? Oh, well, I thought it was really funny. I think James Franco is a pretty good filmmaker. But the reason I bring it up, I actually drove my company van by the East Hotel downtown where the world premiere was accidentally. And, and there's large men in suits. It was very interesting scene. But I bring it up because you have John McCain and uh, old Republicans coming out and defending the intellectual pothead filmmakers. <laughs> I know. I think, I, I'm about to turn 32. And it's like, this is a big win for my generation. I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't <laughs> and a big win for the potheads. I know. No. I know. <laughs> <laughs> It's no, legal on, uh, on Native American lands now. It's, uh, the U.S. in December said it, it's legal for marijuana and hemp on Native American lands. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, it's certainly legal here in Colorado. Uh, we just, uh, that's another, you know, we're, we're in our one-year anniversary of having recreational marijuana. And, uh, you know, we're all in one piece, all as well. But, yeah, it's... Um, you know, you mentioned John, John McCain, and, you know, the way these things work out are so interesting. You just realize that God has a certain sense of humor here. And, you know, even if we look back on, I talked about ISIS and, and Ebola as well, I'd have to say that Obama's policies, and, you know, I'm an Obama-apologist, I call myself. I love the guy. But, you know, his, his, his um, response to both of these things, I think, has been vindicated. McCain and the neoconservatives wanted to go into Syria years ago. They wanted to put boots in the ground and you know, a big American military offensive to um, push back on ISIS. And Obama held back. And um, because he held back, the, uh, you know, Maliki, who was the prime minister of Iraq, was voted out. We have a new, uh, uh, I'm forgetting his name, begins with an A, the new prime minister who's, again, educated in the West. That helps. Um, has managed to bring the Kurds in. The Kurds are with the Shiites, the Sunnis. You know, eventually ISIS is going to be spat out by the Sunnis that are 
you know, basically allowing them to operate uh, because the, the Sunnis were operating from the position of the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Well, they're in the process of realizing that my what I thought was my original enemy is better than my friend. And, uh, you know, so, I, you know, I think ISIS's days are numbered uh, from, from, from the inside. And Obama was right not to, you know, rush in, fools rush in, right? And also Ebola. I mean, the criticism of him not having a travel ban and him being politically correct and, you know, bending backwards for his African roots. I don't know what the criticism was. The conservatives were, you know, travel ban all the way. And, you know, it turns out that that wasn't so necessary. So two cheers for Obama there. Uh, thanks, Chase. Uh, I see we have another question from Loring. Loring, how you doing, man? Hey, good, Jeff. Love you. Love the program. Cool. What's wanted, on your mind? Listen, I wanted to bring up this, uh, just an FYI, regarding the Uranus square Pluto recurrence. As you remember, in 1962 was the last occurrence of this. And what will happen is that Uranus is the planet of revolution, of higher consciousness, and Pluto is the ruler of the underground, the unconscious, and is a control freak. So you have the conservative liberal uh, push and pull in this area. Now, if you remember the 60s, everything happened that was a you know revolutionary and so forth. Dane Rudyard said when I talked to him about it in 1962, that it would involve women's liberation as well as that of blacks, civil rights, the old guard versus youth, drug sex would be involved regarding exploration and further insights. And there would be breakthroughs in understanding of consciousness and spirituality. So here we go again, and this should be even more interesting. So I'm just throwing this into the optimistic area of 2015. Yeah. Well, I don't know how the planets play into it, but uh, for sure, we have what came online in the 60s, you know, talking to sex, uh, drugs, rock and roll, <laughs> uh, just the, the counterculture. You know, that continues to grow, not necessarily in that first cutting edge as it did in the 60s, but just, you know, people who are interested in ecology, people, feminism, gay rights, animal rights, uh, civil rights. It's spread the fruits, the insights of the green meme, which is what we're talking about here, uh, continues to, to spread and proliferate on the, in the leading edge, um, really all over the world. So that will continue. We'll continue to keep an eye on it. And um, yeah, I, um, I think that's uh, something we can count on. So I see we're a little bit over time and that's fine. We'll wrap up. I do want to point out that uh, on my blog, Daily Evolver, I published last week a, an interview with Frank Visser, who is one of the chief critics of the integral movement, um, of integral theory, of the you know, integral community in general. He runs a, a website called integralworld.net. And, you know, many of you are familiar with Frank. I'm one of the big proponents and a defender and all of that. So we're natural enemies in the wild. But it turns out we actually like each other <laughs> and got along fine. Um, and uh, so check that out. And also, uh, Frank and uh, Joe Perez. Joe Perez has put out a, a new blog called Integral Blog. And it's just great. Uh, I really love Joe and what he does and how he thinks. And, you know, what a fierce advocate for Integral he is. And so he and Joe, or he and Frank, have uh, go at it a little more tooth and claw. But um, as uh, one of my listeners pointed out over the hiatus in a speak pipe message to me. She said, you're the Mr. Rogers of the integral world. And so, you know, I am maybe terminally nice, but uh, Frank and I had a good conversation. So check it out. Anyway, folks, let's at least, you know, with all of the, you know, sham and drudgery, <laughs> you know, broken dreams, as they say in the Desiderata, that is just part of life on earth. We're living in a golden age, and 
it would be sort of silly and even ungrateful not to notice that and to feel into that in a way that is inspiring. You know, we often point out that one of the main differences between pre-integral stages of development and integral and post-integral stages of development is that the pre-integral stages are founded in, you know, some version of fear, some version of ideology, some version of how the world should be and how human beings have driven it into the ditch. And at the integral stage, we get the, you know, basically the historical evolutionary view that shows us that every stage of development has an insight and a piece of the truth that is available to us in integral consciousness, which is basically a bigger consciousness that allows all of these many flowers to bloom, allows more and more to be online in our psyches and in our culture and greater opportunities for solutions to ever more complex problems. That is the story of evolution, and I'm sticking with it. So, uh, once again, thanks, everybody. It's good to be back. We will see you in a week next Tuesday night for another edition of the Daily Evolver Live. This is Jeff Salzman, Brett Walker, signing off. Good night, folks.